It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Here at RBC, we are celebrating the advent of our Lord with a sermon series entitled, Do You Hear What I Hear? The first theme of Advent is hope, and today Pastor Rick is looking at Luke chapter 1 in a sermon entitled, News Too Good to Believe. Here's Rick. So if you had been there, how surprised would you have been? I mean, again, imagine a flash mob taking over a food court, but you were there, imagine. You were sitting down at a table, maybe alone, maybe with some of your family, your fast food is in front of you, and what are you probably thinking about? Presents you've already bought or you have yet to buy today. Uh, Groceries on the way home that you have to buy in order to pull off those special meals. Uh, You're probably wondering, man, when am I going to get the rest of my decorations up? I mean, those are the kinds of things that are going through your mind, and that would be normal. That would be typical of the routine that you're in. Shopping, eating, drinking, relationships. See, surprises happen when they're unexpected. That's just the very nature of surprises. When everything appears normal, when everything appears familiar to us, when it's predictable and we're just going about our routines, and then suddenly out of the blue, the unexpected occurs, we're caught off guard, and sometimes... It changes our lives forever. As we begin this Advent season in our special sermon series, we are going to watch surprise after surprise after surprise occur. And in each case, it's because an angel comes and delivers a special message and the recipients who heard it wondered if they had heard correctly. That's why the sermon series is called, Do You Hear What I Hear? And it dramatically changed their lives. That's exactly where the Christmas story begins in Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn back to where Al read a few moments ago. Because we're going to investigate and look at an older couple by the name of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And life for them has become routine. They've settled into this mundane existence. You could say for them that life is kind of on cruise control. Consider a couple things. For example, let's just start with who this guy is, Zechariah. We know he's a priest. We're told that. He's a priest in one of the 24 divisions of priests who are called to Jerusalem one after another to maintain the Old Testament religious system. So every division has their two-week duty rotation to come to the temple and perform all of the religious duties of the law. So on their kitchen calendar... Zechariah and Elizabeth had circled in red the two weeks where he was going to make this business trip. Now, the priest on duty had very specific directions in order to what they do. It was a well-oiled machine. And Zechariah, by this time in his life, because we are told they are an older couple, he's fulfilled this duty rotation you know, every other year for how many years he could do all this stuff with his eyes closed. And nothing about that year, about being in Jerusalem, nothing about fulfilling all these duties of the temple was remarkable or exceptional at all. Now, add on top of that, 
God's been silent for 400 years. When we come to the opening pages of the New Testament, and Luke is like the beginning of the New Testament, there has not been a prophet, there has not been any miracles, God's not said anything for four centuries. So though the priests are leading the people in the daily sacrifices and the burning of incense and the prayers of petition before God, for Him to come and act on their behalf, nothing has happened and nothing has happened for a really, really long time. Now let's also consider something else. We need to consider Zechariah and Elizabeth's personal life. God's been silent there as well. Look at verse 7. What's the first word? But, now everything that's being said about them in verse 6 is true. They're both righteous before God. They're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. God's not answered their prayers for a baby. And Elizabeth, all of her life, has borne the painful title, barren. So here we have really good people with really deep wounds, quietly going about business as usual, and their personal life mirrors the nation of Israel. Life is on cruise control. When the unexpected Happens when a surprise takes their breath away and we suddenly see them now strapped to a cruise missile. <laughs> Zechariah is, I think, given maybe a little hint that something unusual may occur or something unusual is maybe up when the roll of the dice selected him on this specific day to be the one to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but just the holy place, burn the incense in the daily ritual of prayers before God. He is in that very special place that the Old Testament law says God will meet with his people there. And guess what happens? We already read it. We know an angel shows up. Verse 12. And this is what the angel's reaction, or the reaction to the angel. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, why is he startled? Well, because he's supposed to be in there alone. There's not supposed to be anybody else in there. But second, he's gripped with fear because the appearance of the angel, though very human-like in form, is also bears the characteristic of heaven in a distant glory that we don't get to see very often. And this cruise missile ride starts to become very exhilarating, not just because of what Zechariah sees with his eyes, but with what his ears all of a sudden hear, because the 400 years of silence is broken. The angel came to say something to him, and the message is so out there. Look at the first part of it in verse 13. What does the angel say? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, if you were Zechariah, what would you immediately be thinking? Which prayer? (laughs) My personal prayer or my prayer for the nation? Interesting. Let's keep going here because we're going to find out it's both. (laughs) You're going to have a baby. It's a boy. Give him the name John. And you are going to have incredible joy at his birth. But so, you know what? So are a lot of other people. Why are a lot of other people going to be happy? Verse 15. 
for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or any strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, Zechariah as a priest would immediately know the angel was referring to the prophet Malachi and his prophecy. So hold your finger here in Luke. Back up from Mark into Matthew to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Not Malachi, Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1. What does the prophet say? For God, he says, Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now look over at chapter 4, look at verse 5 and verse 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, God, and and Zechariah knew this prophecy, God was going to send the Messiah, and now it's linked together. Zechariah's son is going to be the promised forerunner to prepare people for the Messiah's arrival. That's the wonderful news. But it's interesting how the missile ride gets a little turbulent right now. Look how Zechariah responds. Verse 18. So he says to the angel, How shall I know this? What's he really saying there? Well, let's look at the angel's response to him that begins in verse 19. The angel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold... You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Why did he get that kind of reaction? Do you see what the angel was pointing out? In his simple question, how shall I know this? Zechariah wants assurance. Now, some of your translations in front of you say, how can I know for sure? Good translation. Or some of you have in front of you, I want to know for certain. In other words, Zechariah wanted more than the angel's words. The angel knew that and pointed out Zechariah's unbelief. Okay, now think about what's going on in Zechariah and Elizabeth's personal life. What did we see back in verse 7? She's barren. So when the angel speaks about a pregnancy, he's poking at lifelong wounds. The couple's biological clock has wound down. They're an older couple. Their deep longings for a child have been long since buried. They've bandaged these wounds of being childless with resignation. How can I know for sure? That's revealing Zechariah's heart. He wants a guarantee. Why? 
because he's scared to believe. He's scared to hope. He's scared to tell Elizabeth. And why is he scared? Because to believe, for them or for us, for them or us to hope, puts us in a vulnerable position of possibly experiencing disappointment. Now, there's a great deal of humor that's going on here, though you may not pick it up initially. But let me help you see it this way. When you receive good news, what's your natural, instinctive response? You want to share it with others? You can't wait to tell other people what's going on. So the humor here is that Zechariah, you heard the angel's words, now you're not going to be able to have any words. (laughs) You are going to stay silent. You can't share it. So can you imagine Zechariah arriving back home and trying to communicate with Elizabeth what happened to him and what's going to happen? Every day he's reminded of his unbelief. Well, what happens? Starting in verse 24, we find out that Elizabeth does indeed become pregnant. And listen to her joyful comment in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now that phrase, he has looked upon me, literally stating that God is being favorable to her. Literally, he's being graceful to her. And that's the point of the story. Elizabeth sees it clearly. In the coming of John, God's grace was being given and her disgrace is being removed. Now, what Elizabeth and Zechariah probably couldn't fully see is that this is wonderful news for us. The surprising initiative of God injects unexpected hope into our lives. See, we are given this story here in Luke chapter 1. In fact, all the stories that we're going to look at over these next few weeks together in order for us to personally enter into it. So we are to put on their robes. We are to put our feet into their sandals because we are so like this couple. For so many of us, life has just become routine. Life has just become predictable. We're going through the motions. It's all so familiar. We could do it all with our eyes closed. And yet below the surface, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, we have our own set of unmet longings. We've got our own set of painful wounds down there. And God, well, God seems to have disappeared off the radar for most of us. We haven't heard from him in a really, really long time. Oh, we don't doubt that he's out there. But that's the point. He's out there. I mean, he's really out there somewhere. But the fantastic news that's almost too good to believe is like C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the country of Narnia has been in perpetual winter for so long, but the word is beginning to spread that Aslan the lion is on the move. That's what's happening here. And as our God takes the initiative, he intends for it to inject hope into our lives, just as it did for Zechariah and Elizabeth here. And that's right where the impact of the story is for us. 
See, woven into the events of this story are three powerful elements of hope. And they're linked together. So the first element links into the second like a chain or a railroad car, one to another. And then the first and the second link all the way up into the third. Now, every single one of us in this room, I bet, needs a shot of hope this morning. And so let's let this story, which is the beginning of the larger story of Christmas, reveal how hope can be injected into our lives, and it can be injected in three ways. Again, the first will link to the second, which will also link to the third. Watch this. Notice how, first of all, hope begins by believing that God is on the move. So you can't read this story, in fact, you can't read any biblical story for that matter, without realizing that the God of heaven is an initiator. In fact, he delights to take surprising initiative. He's never passive. He's never restrained by anything. In fact, beyond and behind everything that we can see with our literal eyes, there's this larger story that is unfolding. Divine plans are moving towards fulfillment. And we can say, oh yeah, Rick, I know that, I know that. But do you realize that when God moves, it creates chaos on our end? Because it upsets our apple carts. It changes our plans. It shatters our routines. It disturbs our preferences. I mean, just consider all through the scriptures. Let me just give you a couple. Consider what he did for uh, for Abraham. Send him on a lifelong camping trip. Ladies, how excited would you be about that? (laughs) Moses. Send him for caring for a bunch of stinking, smelling sheep to free a people from slavery. David anointed as king, and then he had to run for seven years for his life. James and John, Peter and Andrew, minding their own business and their family fishing business when Jesus walks up one day and invites them to walk away from it all and walk with him. (laughs) Folks, we cannot box God in. He's liable to show up at any time and start something extraordinary at the most ordinary of moments in our lives. Folks, our God is faithful, but we also need to remember that he is notoriously unpredictable. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It wasn't that long ago when Lucy and I were in a wilderness season of our lives where we were just eight years ago. When we were working minimum wage jobs, I think I've told you this before, master of theology, and I was picking up cigarette butts in a parking lot. Eventually, I started working at a local Marriott hotel behind the front desk, checking in guests. And one day, a man came to be checked in, and I recognized, oh, yeah, you're the guy that's going to preach at church, at my church this coming Sunday. I'd heard about him, heard a lot of good things about him, and just on the spur of the moment said, hey, could we have breakfast together while you're in town? I said, sure. So we had breakfast, and in that conversation of talking about my story and what God might be doing, he looked at me and said, Rick, you know, I sense that maybe God is wanting you to be an interim pastor. And that comment reignited a long, dormant desire that had been there for about three years. But I couldn't see what God was doing. But he was preparing me for two, from two weeks since that breakfast I got a phone call about midnight 
from a church saying, Rick, would you come be our interim pastor? God is notoriously unpredictable and upsets our preferences, our schedules, our plans. Why? Because God's on the move. So when we hear that and when we believe that and when we count on it, hope starts to be injected and stir in our hearts because we're not alone. Because life is not a random set of occurrences that have no meaning, but rather there is a God in heaven. He's on the move and we can count on it in hope. Now let's add to that a second thing we see in the story. Let's link the first two together. And that is God is on the move doing what he said. In other words, God will do what he has promised. And the angel's message here to Zechariah was simply stating that the promise made through Malachi the prophet was going to be fulfilled now. Folks, that's our God. A promise-keeping God. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Well, of course not. Does he promise and not fulfill? Well, of course not. Or how about Romans chapter 40 and verse 20? Abraham was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20? For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Let me give you a last one. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Friends, we have got a promise keeping God. He does what he says he will do. Okay, yeah, Rick, but what about those times when he's silent? I'm glad you brought that question up. How about those times when your prayers just seem to bounce off the ceiling? What about some of those deep longings? And you've waited, and you've waited, and you've waited, and nothing has happened. That's when we need to be aware of the timing issue that's involved. Look at the scriptures. Look at verse 20. What does the angel tell to Zechariah? At the end of verse 20. And these things will be fulfilled in their time. Do you ever realize that God is going to act on his promise not one second early and not one second late? That's hard for us. There are times when I've tried to become the fourth member of the Trinity <laughs> because I have told God a number of times, you know, your timing here is just absolutely lousy. And that's when God graciously but firmly reminds me of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false, though it linger. What's the next statement? Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, when we realize that God is on the move and he will do what he has promised, it will ignite a hope to wait 
for His timing in our lives. In fact, it's interesting, the word wait and the word hope are the same word. And by the way, that is why it is so good on a daily basis to be reading the Scriptures, to be immersing yourself in this book, because as we do, we will be reminded of God's promises. We will be reminded of these stories where He is faithful to do what He has said. Folks, God's on the move. He's doing what He said. Now let's add the third element to this. God's on the move, doing what He said for our good. Now, there are so many good things that we would enjoy God doing for us. But this passage makes it clear that he's after what is ultimately most good for us. And what he did for Elizabeth is what he wants to do for each of us. Our good, she describes in two ways. First, Elizabeth realized in these days... God wants me to receive his grace. Again, Elizabeth was profoundly moved by God that he would give her a baby. She didn't deserve it. She hadn't earned it. God wasn't obligated in any way to have to give it to her. It was simply by grace. Again, she says, the Lord has done this for me in the days when he looked on me. Looked on me is literally, he's he's been favorable to me. He has been gracious to me. And God wants every single one of us to live every single day with that same deep appreciation that we are recipients of His grace. And we know what grace is. The grace of God is getting what I don't deserve. Not what I want. But simply what He is motivated to give me out of His love and His compassion for me, for you. And by the way, why is it so hard for us to get that right and keep it right? It is, isn't it though? It's very difficult for us. I mean, why do we tend to think that God will be good to me, but I've got to earn it? I've got to, just, I've got to do what's right, and I've got to stay away from what's wrong, and then I can earn this stuff. Or I think I have to deserve it. So I compare myself with other people. And for some, with some other people, I look pretty good. Yeah. And then I look at other people, and I go, whoa. And I don't measure up. I don't measure up to their gifts, their education, their influence, their accomplishments, their discipline in life. Or I think that God should feel obligated to be good to me. I mean, after all, I've been consistently in church, even in bad weather. I've given most of the time. I mean, for goodness sakes, think about all those years I've helped out in the church nursery. Changing dirty diapers should have earned me something with my God. But all that line of thinking, earning, deserving, God's obligated, is self-righteousness, my friends. And what does it do? It negates grace. But when hope is injected in my lives because God is on the move doing what he has said, I gain a sense of freedom. I gain a sense of liberty because I'm released from the bondage of trying to earn it from my God, of trying to deserve it from my God or obligating him in in some way. And I have a joy every day entering into it to know that he loves me and he's going to do what's good for me because my good matters to him. Now, good is just not defined by receiving His grace, though that's an important one. Look at verse 25 again. Just like Elizabeth, it's also defined that in these days He wants to remove my disgrace. The English Standard Version I'm using in front of me says reproach. Same word, disgrace. 
That word disgrace or reproach there in verse 25 describes a sense of shame, deep regret, even embarrassment. What it pictures is a person who knows something very deep inside of us and, 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 and verbally out loud says, how could you have done that? Ooh. See, you catch the tone there. Disgraced are those faults that both condemn and humiliate us. Our disgrace are those things we don't tend to talk about. We choose instead to hide them, to keep them very quiet. They are deep, painful wounds that fester inside of us, but we guard them with a quiet resignation. Folks, it is that place in our lives that feels barren. Just like Elizabeth. And God wants to bring a sense of hope to your life this morning right in that place. He wants to remove that sense of disgrace this morning. There are wounds I have, you have, that we that really require his deep healing. And some of those wounds need the cleansing experience of forgiveness. Psalm 103, verse 10 He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. He wants to remove your disgrace. In fact, it's interesting in Isaiah chapter 61, starting at verse 1, Jesus said, this is speaking of me. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for the prisoners and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's grace. You can do that today. Right here, right now. Not just a reception or a receiving of his grace, but a removal of disgrace. Yeah, the news the angel brought just rocked Zachariah's world. And that's what God wants to do this morning inside us, folks. He wants to come into our predictable, stable, routine lives, being his notorious, unpredictable self. He wants to, in a surprising initiative, inject unexpected hope into our lives right here, right now. How? By reminding us that he is on the move, doing what he said for our good. So let's pray about this. Father, some of us this morning have got those deep wounds. As the scriptures have been looked at this morning, some of us here know exactly how Zachariah and Elizabeth felt because we've got those. Those places that need your healing, those places that need your forgiveness, they have been long since boarded up, locked down, and yes, we've been living in quiet resignation. Scared to death to open that door, scared to death to hope.
that you'll love us if we talk to you about this stuff. That you'll be accepting of us as we admit what's there and how hard it's been and how disappointed we've been. And that's why it's hard for us to hope. Lord, would you meet with us right here, right now? Would you come and help us receive your grace in these places of wounding, of disappointment, of waiting that's never been fulfilled? And may we come and yield that to you, a God who is on the move doing what he has said for our good, and believe your word. Lord, you know how I would want more assurance than that. I think most all of us do. We would want guarantees, but you're asking us to walk by faith and trust your word. And so, Father, in wanting to believe that you're on the move, Father, would you give us the hope that you will show up for us individually? Lord, I pray that for us as a church. We need you. Show up, please, for us. Father, to believe that you will do what you've said, Lord, I pray you'd give me and all my brothers and sisters in this room the faith to hang on to the promises of your word. And Father, for the hope that you want to inject into my life that you will work for my good, Lord, I want to receive your grace and I want you to release me from my disgrace this morning. Hear the cries of your people's hearts. We have no one else to turn to but you. But we turn to you because you are the loving God who's full of compassion and kindness and who cares for his people that he sent us you, his own son. Father, may that be what we hang on to this morning. And that's what our prayer is in Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. Org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.